Now, Father, in this these few minutes that we have together, we are our hearts are full. They've been lifted up to you by your grace and worship, in both the hearing of the word and in the participation of your own body and blood with us, Lord. We are we're grateful, and so um, we were reminded this morning about gratitude, and uh, it seemed so segue and dovetail into what we talked about last week, Lord. As the heart of the response of God's people is, is gratitude. And we are grateful. We know, Lord, that left to our own devices, um, we would be lost. And yet you come to us, Lord, not one time, but you come to us again and again and again to remind us that you are for us. Even when you move in mysterious ways, you are for us. And teach us, Lord, to believe and help our unbelief, because we all struggle with that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Well, we're moving this morning into that section of the Bible referred to by some, and I like this particular term, the former prophet. So we've just left the law, the Torah, um, with massive gaps in our presentation still there, obviously. Um, and now we've moved into from Torah into the law into the, from the law into the prophets and then into the writings. That's the way in which the Hebrew canon sets up its structure in that tripartite canon. And in that middle section there of the um, the prophets, there are former and latter prophets. Now, this morning, I want to do some reflection with you on the former prophets, and that is Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And again, obviously, this is going to be a significant, you know, this isn't just an aerial Goodyear blimp. This is kind of like a satellite view um, of the whole of the United States. I mean, that's kind of how we're doing this. Um, so before we hop into this, I, I kind of, from an illustrative standpoint, I'm, um, I don't know, I don't know if I should be embarrassed to tell you this or not. I'm feeling, um, and so this, even though I'm being recorded, you know, proverbially, we'll keep this in here. Um, I, uh, I, I have, a deep, I had a deep addiction um, to the TV show Breaking Bad. Um, I'm not necessarily proud of that. And I know some of you out here that I can see right now did too, but I will not out you. Um, um, but I don't... Did, did it, did, well, I won't ask. Um, it's, it's the kind of program, frankly, that my wife would never enjoy watching, ever. But she was equally as addicted to it as I was, um, to the point where on Sunday nights we had a kind of feverish battle to get our children, all three of them, down, you know, by by 7.30 to give us the 30-minute break window that we know we need to continue to negotiate that going to bedtime so that by 8 we could, we could watch the show. Well, you know the premise. This isn't necessarily a spoiler alert. Um, I won't tell you how it all goes if you want to Netflix this thing, but, um, and, you know, do so, do so carefully. Um, but what's this, the story of a man who, for the sake of his family, um, begins, he's a chemistry a professor, a teacher in high school, and he begins to cook crystal meth. Um, I'm kind of embarrassed saying this in these hallowed halls, um, to, to support his family, and then it all spirals downward. The, the creator of the show, Vince Gilligan, was on record as saying, "My this is a moral tale, and my goal for this show is to take Mr. Chips and over a series of episodes to turn him into Scarface. Um, and that's exactly what happens. It is a downward 
progressive spiral. Uh, now the ending is interesting, but and we could talk about that. But the, but the, there is without doubt a downward progressive spiral in the life of this normal next door neighbor Walter White, who teaches chemistry and is now an empire builder. And it's just, it's just, it's astounding. Um, the analogy breaks down in multiple places, but the point of connection is that that actually works as a pretty decent illustration of the history of Israel. So you get into the book of Joshua, right? And we move from Deuteronomy into Joshua. And Joshua now, with a very important break, I think, from Deuteronomy into Joshua, recognizes his own authority as the leader of Israel, as an authority based on the interior character of Moses. Let me read to you Joshua chapter 1. If you have iPhones or... You know, Bibles, you can turn there too. Um, Joshua chapter 1, um, verses 1 through 8. Actually, I'll just do 7 through 9. Only be strong, says Joshua, and be very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Does that sound like Psalm 1, right? How blessed is the man, Psalm 1, who meditates on God's, God's law day and night. It's a funny term, actually, for meditate. It's an onomatopoetic term. It's a term that's the sound actually tells us what's going on. Um, like buzz is a kind of onomatopoetic word. Haga is the Hebrew term there for meditate. Um, it's what doves do. They haga. It's what um, lions do when they bury their mouth in the side of a gazelle. And you see this on the National Geographic channel. From a distance, the camera zooms in. And what's the sound that you hear coming from this lion as he's chewing on his prey? You hear, haga, 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 haga. Right, this is the Hebrew term. To meditate, to chew on it, to reflect on the law, the instruction of God day and night that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of a good courage. Be not frightened, neither be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So Joshua, in the book of Joshua, cites Deuteronomy as the book of the Torah. It's before. It functions now as law for this new people that have enter, are entering into the land. And you remember this with, with Moses on the plains of Moab at the end of Deuteronomy. He can't go into the land. Moses remains an exilic figure, the kind of paradigmatic exilic figure who never really found his home. His home was in Egypt. His home was at Midian. His home was Canaan, the land of Canaan, the promised land. And he wasn't given that either. He just had to look at it from the hills. And then he was not. Um, so here is Moses on the plains of Moab giving the people the law as they go in. This is how your lives will be lived in an ordered and right way. And if you do so, there is life. Listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse, 30, verse, uh, verse 11. For this commandment which I command you this day is not too hard for you, neither is it too far off. Verse 15, see, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. 
If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you this day, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His ordinances, then you shall live and multiply. The Lord your God will bless you in the land which you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away, and you will not hear, but are drawn to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you this day that you shall perish. That is the theology of Deuteronomy really in a nutshell. You're standing at a crossroads, Israel. Choose life, which means to walk in accordance with my ordinance. Choose life. But if you go your own way, hardening your heart, serving other gods, worshiping other gods, because we know, Exodus chapter 20, the first commandment, that God is a jealous God. He's jealous or He's zealous for the love of His people. He will not share His affections with any other gods. It's Him and Him alone. And so now they're standing on the brink of going into the land and the walls are about to fall down. You know, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and they walk around and the walls come down and they go into the land and Joshua is telling the people, listen, Moses' word where he interacted with God face to face. I don't interact with God that way. I'm under the authority of Moses. Moses' word continues to exert its pressure on you to shape and form us as the people of God, as a living witness among the nations, that this is what it looks like to live in covenant with God. And if you follow in that way and you live in that way, joy, peace, your harvest will be fruitful, your children will multiply. I mean, the hyperbole sort of goes off the charts about how good it's going to be if you follow in His ways. And we can say from one standpoint that in Joshua chapter 24, as we move from the challenge from Moses in the plains of Moab, as the people initially move into the promised land of Canaan, that there's a golden era in Joshua chapter 24, or the book of Joshua. It's the era where we could say life has been demonstrated. The promise that Moses gave is working itself out. Listen to these verses here, Joshua 24, verse 31. And this is, by the way, right at the end of the book of Joshua. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work which the Lord did for Israel. That was the golden era. So that initial generation that came in with Joshua, they served the Lord all their days. They walked in the joy of Torah. They walked in the joy of living life in soul devotion to God, and they enjoyed the benefits of that, that first generation. That was as good as it ever got in the history of Israel. And we flip a page, and we're into Judges now, the next book, and listen to these haunting verses out of Judges chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. You know, they sort of divvied out the land among the tribes. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work which the Lord had done for Israel. So after Joshua died, the initial elders of the land were still there, those who had come through the wilderness wandering, and they served the Lord. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the bounds of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, the northern part of Israel, north of the mountain of Gaash, 
And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Now, all of them were dying. Right? That generation's dying. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work which he had done for Israel. And that particular turn that we have from Moses on the plains of Moab, telling the people of God, choose life. In other words, we tend to think, don't we, mostly about law from an Old Testament perspective as a kind of negative thing. Don't do this, don't do this. But there's a positive prescription to this from an Old Testament perspective. Why someone like David, who was a sinner, right? They, they, their sins could be atoned for within the sacrificial system. David was a sinner. He knew the accusing character of the law as well. But he could at the same time say, but your instruction, your law is sweeter to me than honey. Than the drippings of the honeycomb. Oh, that I would love and delight in your precepts and your statutes. What's the positive account? The positive side of the law is, this is what God says is the best way to order life in covenant with Him. And it really is best. I mean, it really is better than to go after foreign gods and to begin to construct your world and your worldview on the basis of the competing religions of the various Canaanite religions around you. It is better to follow in my way. In other words, God's giving of instruction to His people was not the act of a tyrant, a kind of jealous tyrant who's saying, you're going to do it my way or the highway. But the giving of the law was an act of a good and gracious and loving God saying, these, this Torah, these commandments reflect my own character. And my character as it imposes on you gives you the best way to live. It's, it's a good word for you. But, we hear this in, in Judges, a whole generation arose who did not know the Lord or the work which He had done for Israel. That particular turn of phrase, to me, is singularly important. Why? Because do you remember what we saw back in Exodus chapter 20 or in Deuteronomy 6? We talked about this last week. When your son asks you, why did this, why, what do these commandments mean? What, what, what's the substance of all these commandments? Do you remember the answer that was given? The answer was given not a kind of abstract reflection on the importance of the law or what the law means. The answer given was their story of election and redemption. We were slaves in Egypt and God redeemed us. That's the substance of what the law is about. Exodus chapter 20, the famous Ten Commandments that we all know about, right? How does Exodus chapter 20 begin? First verse, you were slaves in Egypt and I redeemed you. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. It was the preemptive, it was the, the, the singular, the anterior work of God on their behalf in redemption that made God's claims on them have any sense at all. And here you have a whole generation that arises within the ranks of Israel who did not know the Lord, that particular important covenantal term of intimacy. They did not know the Lord and they did not know His work. They did not know what He had done on their behalf. It's... Really tragic, actually, isn't it? Because you've read the Psalms long enough to know, many of you who have find great comfort in the book of Psalms, and I, I do as well, you've read the Psalms long enough to know that when the people of God, whether individually or corporately, are in a tight spot, we call those the lament Psalms, when they're in a tight spot, they're complaining, they're confused, they're disoriented. A significant trope that you, or literary device that we find again and again in the Psalms is 
And when you're in that moment, remember the mighty deeds that God has done for you in the past. Remember what God has done for you in the past. That He will again do it for you in the future. Remember what God has done. It's why, by the way, when we come to church every Sunday, it's really, really important. Because what are we doing when we come to church every Sunday, especially in the Book of Common Prayer tradition that we enjoy and have the privilege to experience here? You know what we get every week? We get the narrative of the Gospel, of God's mighty acts for His people, told to us again and again and again. So that my particular story, the little small world of Mark Genelette and my sphere of influence, my wife and my three little boys, I mean, that sphere of my life, my personal narrative, gets swarmed into something much bigger than my personal story. It gets taken up into the larger story of what God has done for me. And I need to be reminded in the liturgy, week in and week out, what God has done so that I can know Him and I can know the claims that He makes on my life. Those claims, by the way, when he makes them on my life, as we heard this morning in the sermon, have a smile behind them, not a frown. There's a smile. It's a gracious move of God on his part to say, you're mine. I've claimed you, you're mine. Walk in this way. So here's a whole generation that arose within the midst of Israel who did not know the Lord, they did not know Yahweh, and they did not know his mighty work. And we know that it is integral to our spiritual lives to our life of faith, to be reminded again and again about the mighty acts that God has done for His people. Because talking about the instruction of God and the law of God apart from grace renders us in a position of slavery. That's Paul's logic in Galatians. It puts us in a position of slavery, not not freedom. But we have that word again and again that comes to us about the good news of God and Jesus and what He has done for us. People complain to Martin Luther about this, and I have, you know, I have my own sort of, you know, I'd have questions to ask Herr Luther as well if he walked in, in the room. Um, but people would say things to Luther like, you know, you, you talk about the gospel over and over and over again. Why? And he says, well, when you get it, I'll stop. Right? When you get it, I'll stop. I mean, that's a kind of, you know, that's a kind of, a pre- that's a preacher will to power move, isn't it? Um, I mean, this is, but this is true for me as well, right? I mean, we, when do we ever need to stop hearing? The word of the gospel of redemption, of liberation from the tyranny of sin that has laid its claim on us. When do we ever tire or run out of the necessity to hear that again and again? Luther was right. And the whole Reformation tradition was right. Never, never. That's why we come on Sunday morning eager to hear the word of the Lord speak. It's why we come for Eucharist Sundays eager to participate again in the very life of God Because we need to be reminded that my particular story, as important as it is to me, right, is caught up into something much bigger. And here is a whole group of Israelites who had forgotten that. And this is where we've gone now. So Joshua 24, life. And then when we move into Judges, death. So that the promise that Moses gave in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and all the way through on that speech on Moab is now coming into its and coming to its own in Israel's life. And it really will never go away. And here's the pattern that we have. Why I mentioned um, breaking bad at the beginning and might regret doing so tomorrow. Um, But here's the spiral that we have in the book of Judges and really the whole of the history of Israel. We have sin. We have judgment. We have repentance, and then we have God's restoration. People sin, 
There's judgment that comes because of it. They repent. They recognize. They cry out in necessity and in need. And then there's restoration. But don't think of that as a flat repetition. I did for a long time in the book of Judges. It's a flat repetition. Sin, judgment, repentance, restoration. Sin, judgment, repentance, restoration. It's not flat. It's a downward spiral. Sin, judgment, repentance, restoration. And it just keeps going down to the place where, again, we've gone back into chaos in Israel's life. Chaos. So what were these judges, right? These judges were redeeming figures. Salvific figures. Who would show up on the far side of the peoples crying out for the deliverance of God. And he would send them into their midst to prepare them. But this is the running theme throughout the book of Judges. I'll just read you one portion of it, but it shows up again and again and again all the way to the end of the book. Judges 3, 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, forgetting the Lord their God and serving the Baals, the Baals, and the Asherot. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Key term here, forgetting the Lord. Forgetting Him. Um, what's the opposite that we're called to? I mean, think about it, even from a Eucharistic standpoint. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, and we see this in Jeremiah. This theme show up again and again. Um, when you go to them and they ask you, why is this happening? You tell them because they have for- forsaken me. They've forgotten my ways. They've forsaken me. So what maintains this covenant relationship between God and man? It's maintained primarily, and you see this language again and again in the Bible, because God remembers His people. And it's not a remembering, I was talking with somebody about this last week after class, it's not a remembering like, oops, I forgot my keys, where are they? It's not that kind of remembering. It's a determination that God is going to act on behalf of His people because He has set His affections on them. He remembers. And what are the people of God called to do in response to that? In gratitude, we remember Him as well. It's a mutual relationship of remembering. And the danger of what idolatry is at its heart is forgetting God. Forgetting the benefits of God. Forgetting His grace. Forgetting His identity. Forgetting His love. Forgetting the fact that He has set His affection on His people. They forgot His ways. And what does that forgetting look like in manifestation? They're serving Baal and Asherah. They're serving the Canaanite god Baal and his female consort Asherah. That's who they're serving. And any of you who maybe subscribe to Biblical Archaeological Review or something like that, and this is not a ground that I'm all that interested in, although I will tell you a funny story about this. I got into the, when we lived out in Pelham, I got into the whirlpool there. Um, at the Pelham YMCA. Um, And I'm not really chatty in the whirlpool. uh, And I'm not really chatty on airplanes either. Part of that is because I'm I'm scared. Um, I I, I tell people, you know, I'm I'm a Calvinist on the ground, but I'm an Arminian at 30,000 feet. Like, I just, something's not right about this. Um, So I'm in the the hot tub, and a guy asks me what I'm doing, and I say, I teach, and and uh, he says, what, what do you teach? I, says, I teach? I teach Bible, Old Testament. And he said, well, what do you... Th-? I mean, kind of deep southern accent. He says, what do you think about that recent stella that they found with David's inscription on it? I'm like, excuse me, sir? 
he was a subscriber to Biblical Archaeology Review. I mean, so I mean, this is this has had a big impact on people knowing about this stuff. But that you know, it should not surprise us in the archaeological work that they do in Israel that they find these kinds of gods. I mean, it's caused real problems for people as they try to think through Israel's religion and how one sorts through that evidence. But there are there are examples, there are artifacts of a god and his wife and his consort. And this is what they're doing. They're worshiping other gods. They're corresponding to the instincts religiously of their neighbors. And that's the whole point of their election, God says, back to Abraham. I'm setting you apart not so that you can be subsumed into the neighbors that are around you religiously, but that so you will be a witness to me and to the nations so that they will be blessed by the fact that you serve the living Lord who made the heavens and the earth. They forgot They forgot the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, we're talking about Bonhoeffer in my house a little bit these days because my, my oldest son's reading a little biography on on Bonhoeffer, and uh, and he was we're talking about that. You know, Bonhoeffer wrote this book, a little small little book on temptation. I don't even think it's in print anymore. But Bonhoeffer, in his very clever and thoughtful way, said, "What temptation is for the Christian is the momentary forgetfulness that God even is. Right. It's uh, it's intentional atheism in the moment, right, or practical atheism." And that's what's going on here, I think, in, in Israel's life. They are forgetting that God even is. I mean, let, and let's not just be overly judgmental here, because we know that for you and for me, in my own world as well, I mean, it's convenient, isn't it, at times to forget that God is, I mean, that He's there, that He's watching, that He's concerned. And the continual presence of God in our midst or in our union with Christ is both a comfort and a challenge. There's two sides to that, I believe. It's a comfort and it's a challenge. And the challenge is a recognition that God sees all things, right? That, there's a scary part of that, but it's true. He sees all things. And the comforting part of that is that we rest under the shadow of His wings. Now, I need, I need to press on. Okay, so Judges ends. The book ends with them saying that they need a king. And God says, I'm going to give you a king. Um. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. This is the last verse of the whole book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so, the end of the book of Judges ends with a kind of setup as we move into Samuel and Kings that Israel needs a king. It needs a king for oversight to help Israel remember the presence of God in their midst. That's the sacramental role that the king plays. But a king, as we see as we move into Samuel and Kings, a king is only as good as that king acts in accord with God's command on him as well. And this is what we see with that that corrupting and ongoing influence of sin in the history of Israel. I won't go into the details of it, but here's how it goes. Saul gets on the throne. That didn't go well, right? Uh, Sin's corrupting there. David comes onto the throne. And let there be no bones about it. First and second Samuel or the book of Samuel is about David and the centrality of the Davidic king. 
So when we get into first and second Kings, we have 38 predecessors that, or 38 progeny of David that are on his throne that come after him. And yet they're given very little space. Two whole books or one big book is given to David. So narratively, we're left with no confusion about who the central defining king of Israel is. It's David. And the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 tells us that that covenant made with David is an eternal promise. That whenever the king of Israel will repent and turn toward God, that that Davidic king will always be met with God's grace. We end the whole Bible in a sense of anticipation. When will the real Davidic king show up? When will the king that we need, who will really be the right representative of God on earth, when will he show up? Well, I don't have to bury my lead on this one, do I? I mean, Pilate was saying something rather profound, wasn't he, when he tacked that little placard up on the cross in multiple languages, which in and of itself is very significant. This isn't just a statement to the Jews. This is a statement toward the world that this one who is hanging here between heaven and hell is the king of the Jews. Pharisees didn't like that, did they? What did they say? Don't write, he is, this is the king of the Jews. Write, he said, this is the king of the Jews. I think at that point, Pilate had had enough haggling with them. He said, what I have written, I have written. And it was a profoundly true statement about the core being of who Jesus is, the real Davidic king. Because when you get back into the Old Testament and you see what happens, you have Saul and then David and then Solomon and Solomon punts at the end as he marries multiple wives, as he adds to his money, as he adds to his wealth, to his power, which is something the book of Deuteronomy says kings should not do. Why do you not add wives to you from foreign nations? Because they'll lead you into their gods, which is exactly what happened with Solomon. He begins worshiping other gods. And before we know it, there's Jeroboam going off to the northern kingdom, and Rehoboam is establishing the southern kingdom, and the kingdoms are split irreparably for the rest of Israel's life. The northern kingdom, as it rises to prominence in the ninth century. And by the way, in the ninth century BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was the kingdom in that world. The southern kingdom was a bit of a, you know, small time operation. Judah and Jerusalem. The northern kingdom was strong. It's a little wonder why the Assyrians took a great interest in Omri, King Omri, and his dynasty. But how many good kings do we have in the northern kingdom? Not even one. There's no king in the northern kingdom who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Every one of them did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But what do we find in the southern kingdom? We find in the southern kingdom that this father did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but his son did what was wrong. And his father did what was right, his son did what was right, and his son did what was right, but his son did what was wrong. It's this back and forth spiral again of sin and judgment and ongoing down into the degradations of the corruption of sin. And just so that we're clear about it, not even David can escape it. It even affects and impacts David's own home when we go back to that paradigm of a king and King David. So what do we have when we come to the end of the former prophets? When we come to the end of kings? And we see 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Neo-Assyrians. And what do we see in 586 B.C. when the southern kingdom is destroyed by the Babylonians? We see the word of Deuteronomy working itself out in the history of Israel. And in a strange way, it actually brings comfort. And the comfort that it brings is 
what God says he will do is exactly what he will do. The history of Israel is a living testimony to the very character of God revealed to Moses all the way back in Exodus. God, who are you? I am merciful, primarily merciful, but I am also severe and not to be trifled with. You follow in my ways, walk in my ways. So this becomes, of, to me, great significance when we turn to the New Testament and we see Jesus take the appellation on himself, the Son of God. Now, of course, you and I know that that's got deep um, Trinitarian and, and uh, theological significance that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, as I heard uh, Stephen Colbert one time interviewing Bart Ehrman, he said, Sir, do you believe that Jesus was God? And uh, Bart Ehrman said, I don't think he was. And, and um, Stephen Colbert says, well, follow this logic with me. What is the son of a duck? Right? The son of a duck is a duck. What is the son of God? He's got I mean, this big statement here about Jesus being the son of God, actually God incarnate. But let us not miss the Israel language here as well. Jesus as the son of God takes on that notion, that standpoint of Israel, who is God's firstborn son. Remember what, what Moses said to Pharaoh? Let my firstborn son go so that he may worship me. And when Jesus comes onto the scene as the Son of God, He is Israel incarnate in our midst, bringing both things to bear on His particular person, both the positive aspect of Israel's election and the negative aspect as well of her rejection when she follows in her own way. So we see Jesus fulfilling her calling to be something for the world. But we also see Jesus on the cross taking finally and ultimately the judgment of Yahweh that He was pouring out on His people that finds its full and its, and its complete vindication as it's poured out on Jesus. When Jesus is on the cross and He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we're observing there is Jesus identifying Himself with the suffering of Israel, all that went into its past, a suffering that was brought unto their own selves, but the suffering of Israel. He's Israel suffering the judgment of his, own, of his own hand. He's the judge who is judged in our place. So when we see Jesus at work, really what we see is the history of Israel working itself out in the person and work of that particular man. So that when he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he comes out victorious. When he goes down to Egypt, he comes out. He's on the mountain giving the new law. And then when we see him at the cross, what we see is the judgment of God that's promised in the Old Testament that's being poured out on Jesus so it doesn't have to be poured out on us anymore. That's a way, one way, it's not the only way, of beginning to see how the whole of the Bible works as a witness to Jesus Christ. Not just particular verses here or there, but the sum total of Israel's history with all of its complexity and its problem and its downward spiral working itself out in, in the person and work of, of the Son. Father, we're thankful for our time together today. And I pray that you will give us great hope and joy in the fact, Lord, that this plan that you had of entering into time and space of determining yourself to be a God for humanity. That it's reached its conclusion and its final word in what you've done in your Son. 
Teach us how to read the whole of the Bible in that way. Give us the lenses to read in accord with your truth. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.